It's good to be with you guys today. Uh, welcome uh, to orient us again. We're in a series uh, through the Minor Prophets. Again, we, we said this several times, but it's sort of an unfortunate name because you know these are our 12 guys who are reflecting on God's heart for His people and for the nations, except for today. <laughs> Today's the exception uh, in some ways, but what we're doing is we're trying to discern what is, what is God like? How does, he, how does He reveal Himself through these books that we often overlook and, and don't give the weight or the time to that, um, that they really deserve? And we're finding that God does have some profoundly good news through each of these prophets. Today we're going to be in the book of Jonah. How many of you have heard the, book, or heard the story of Jonah, right? Kind of heard the kid's version of that story. Jonah getting swallowed by a whale, getting spit up on, on dry ground, going and preaching to this evil city, and they all, they're, all their hearts turn around, and, and Jonah saves the day. It's a little more complicated than that, uh, as we're going to see. But Jonah was a, a prophet around this time of Amos. We, we already looked at Amos around 760 B.C. And the book of Jonah is unique because um, whereas all the other prophets are uh, records of what these prophets have to say, Jonah is unique because it's primarily a, a, a book about the prophet's life. What happens to him and what do we learn from God's activity uh, in the life of this uh, prophet? And it's also unique because whereas all the other prophets seem to have a, a, a pretty decent read on what God is like, uh, we're going to see that Jonah is the only prophet who is completely rebellious and has no interest in serving God. In fact, he's the last to know what God's up to. So if you're, if you're unfamiliar with the story, I want to recap a little bit and then we're going to look at uh, the last part of the, of the book. Um, but God comes to Jonah and He commands him to go to this great city of Nineveh. It was the largest city of Israel's worst enemy, Assyria. Um, because God says, I'm going to judge their evil. I'm going to judge them for how evil they've become. And this would have been no surprise to Jonah because they were a city and a people that was bent on violence and retribution. You would think Jonah would go, great, that sounds like awesome news. I get to go and declare how God hates these people that I hate. But he doesn't run to Nineveh. He runs in the opposite direction towards a city called Tarshish. And he gets on a boat to cross the ocean to get away from what God has just told him to do. And we're not told why yet, but he goes. If you know the story again, he doesn't get very far because what happens to Jonah? What comes along? A storm comes up out of nowhere and Jonah's sleeping in the boat and he gets woken up and there's this huge storm. And ultimately what happens is he tells the sailors to throw him into the ocean because he's the one who's caused the storm. And the sailors resist because they actually have more mercy than Jonah does. Ultimately, they listen to him and they throw him into the ocean and the storm stops. What happens next? This is the most famous part. A big fish comes along, swallows him up. And there he is for the next three days, sitting in the belly of the fish. And he, I don't know where he gets the parchment from, but somehow he composes a poem in the, in the belly of this fish, uh, reflecting on God's heart and, and, uh, and his rebelliousness. But after three days, uh, the fish 
vomits Jonah out onto dry ground. And God comes to him again and says, go to Nineveh. And this time he obeys and he goes. He goes to confront the wickedness of this people. And he gets to to Nineveh and you talk about a short minor prophet, right? All the minor prophets are known for the brevity of their message. How, How brief is Jonah's message to the city of Nineveh? In Hebrew, it's five words. Forty more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. He never mentions why they're evil. And he never mentions the fact that God is the one who's going to overthrow them. He simply says, you have 40 days and the city's going to be overthrown. It's the worst message in history. And what does the city do? To Jonah's great shock, they all repent. Greatest revival the world has ever seen. This city that takes three days to cross from the king to the cows turns their life around, puts on sackcloth and ashes to show just how repentant and sorry they are for their evil. They turn from their violence and their idolatry and they seek God together. Okay, This is where we're going to pick up the story. Jonah 3, verse 10. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, He relented and did not bring on them the destruction that He had threatened. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong. And he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you were gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, Take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, is it right for you to be angry? Silence. Jonah goes out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. He's hoping they repent from their repentance. Then the Lord God provided a leafy plant and made it grow up over Jonah to give him shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the plant. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm. A little worm. How about that? Which chewed the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, it would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? It is, he said. And I'm so angry, I wish I were dead. But the Lord said, you've been concerned about this little plant, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh? in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals. The end. The good news that we proclaim today is that God is not useful 
God is love. God is not useful. God is love. And He delights in showing mercy to whom He wishes, and He wishes to show mercy to all who repent. Let us see today that God is using every means necessary to gain our attention so that we might encounter His goodness and mercy for ourselves, even if it's in the face of our enemy. Will you receive His gift today? Jonah te- or God tells Jonah, go to Nineveh. Jonah runs away. God saves Jonah. Jonah goes to Nineveh. Nineveh repents. God saves Nineveh. How does Jonah react to this series of events? He's angry. He's furious. Okay, why then is Jonah so angry? The, if you've read this story before, maybe you heard it for the first time today, why is he angry? He wanted his enemies gone. Not saved. Yeah, what else? Yeah, I knew you'd be gracious to them. I didn't want you to be. That's why I'm angry. Yeah, God is compassionate towards the people that Jonah hates. Fundamentally, though, I think that Jonah is angry because Jonah is blind. Jonah is blind. The book of Jonah is saturated with irony. Uh, From the beginning to the end, there's all these ironic moments where the things that you expect to happen don't happen, and the things that you don't expect to happen happen again and again and again. We're going to talk about several of them. But the first irony of the book of Jonah is that everyone, everyone in the story has a clearer understanding of what God is like than the prophet who's sent to declare His Word. Everyone. The sailors understand the mercy of God and Jonah does not. The fish understands the salvation of God and Jonah does not. The Ninevites understand the conviction of God and Jonah does not. Even the cows understand the atonement of God and Jonah does not. Jonah is supposed to be the mouthpiece of God and this mouthpiece of God is blind to the reality of God. And he's blind to the reality of himself. He's got a double blindness. So I want to talk about those for a second. He's blind to the reality of who God is. Jonah's mad because he wants to live in a world that's right side up from his perspective. He wants a predictable world where the good guys are commended and the bad guys are punished. Jonah's mad because God refuses to play by the rules. He's angry because he wants a God that he can manage. And that's the other irony of the story, is that the Ninevites, they are renowned for their idol worship. If you walk through the city, you would see statue after statue to all these different gods and goddesses, and and people bow down and worship the ones that they thought would give them the best life. They're renowned for it. So, what's an idol? An idol is a god that you sacrifice to in order to get a predictable outcome. You bring this this false god something and then it gives you something in return. It's a a contractual relationship. In other words, it's a god that you can manage. It's a god that you can control. It's a god that you can manipulate to your agenda, that you can bend to your will. Here's the irony. Who's the one in the story that's treating God this way? 
It's the prophet. One of the things that Jonah is trying to say to us as a story is that God is a living God. He's not manageable. He's not useful. He's faithful, but He's not predictable. He's merciful, but He's not to be managed. He's good, but He's not useful to get what we want. He will surprise us and He will disappoint us. In fact, if you've never been surprised or disappointed by God, it's likely that there's an idol that's taking His place. Because idols never disappoint us. That's why we like them. And Jonah's aware of his idolatry to some degree. It's, it, he has some kind of awareness of it because he says as much when he's composing this poem in the belly of the fish. Back in chapter 2, verse 8, he says, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. In other words, you can have a God of predictability or you can have a God of love. You cannot have both. Because a God of steadfast love can love whoever He pleases. And what do we do? What do we do with a God who refuses to stop loving the people we hate? This is the picture that we get of Yahweh. And this is the picture that infuriates this religious man. God is not useful. God is love. And he delights in showing mercy to whoever, whoever he wishes, and he wishes to show mercy to all who repent. Let us see to, today that God is using every means necessary to gain our attention so that we might encounter this good God and his mercy for others and for us, even if it's in the face of our enemies. So Jonah is not only blind to the reality of who God is, he's also blind to the reality of himself. Jonah is the least self-aware person throughout this entire story. And by the end, it's almost comical how little awareness Jonah has about his contempt and his uh, self-righteousness. I mean, he's acting like a two-year-old by the end of the story who's not getting his lollipop, right? I mean, it's like, come on, Jonah, you know? Like, wake up here. Don't you see what God is trying to do? And he has, he's completely blind to himself. I'm becoming more and more convinced that uh, self-awareness is one of the truest signs of spiritual maturity. Self-awareness is one of the truest signs of spiritual maturity. It's one of the best markers to tell if someone um, is, is maturing in their faith in God is to see whether or not they can identify areas of their life and their heart where they need God's mercy and grace themselves. Can you pinpoint the areas in your life? Not with condemnation, but with the, the light of, of the good news. Can you identify areas in your heart where, where you go, I'm, just, I'm not where I want to be and I'm not where God is, uh, is, you know, may want to lead me, but I, I realize that He's at work in this particular area of my life. And I'm not there yet, but by the grace of God, I will get there. Jonah, though, he, can't, he, he has no depth perception of his own heart. And particularly, he has no perception of how deep his need for God's mercy and grace actually runs in his life. He can't fathom that he might be as much in need as the people that he's condemning. 
And that's why he says, he goes, I knew that you were going to be gracious and compassionate to them. Slow to anger, abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. And then he goes and says this, Now, Lord, take away my life, for it's better for me to die than to live. Uh, in other words, I would, I would rather die than acknowledge that the only thing that separates me from them is the fact that you've been merciful. I'd rather die than be in need. And yet, this description, and this is where it gets crazy, and this is another one of the ironies uh, that, that happens in the book of Jonah. This description that, that Jonah throws in the face of God and says, I knew you were going to be like this. It's, it's a direct quotation of Exodus 34. I don't expect you to remember what happened in Exodus 34, but it's in Exodus 34, this is God's own description of Himself when He reveals Himself to Moses on Mount Sinai and gives the people His laws. All right, now here's the question. As God is giving, him, giving Moses this revelation of what He's like, full of compassion and mercy, slow to anger, abounding in love, relenting from sending calamity, what are the people of Israel doing as God is uttering these words to Moses? Remember? They're building an idol. What is that idol? Oh, yeah, a golden calf. So that the people of Israel are taking all of their precious metals that they've collected from their slavery and their time in Egypt, and they melt them all down, and they use it to cast this golden image of a cow and they're all worshiping the cow as though the cow is the one to get them out of Egypt. And at, at that moment, God is on the top of the mountains realizing that all of this is going on. And He's telling Moses, I am a God who's full of compassion and mercy. I am even forgiving them for what they're doing right now. Here's the irony in the book of Jonah. Jonah quotes the very name that God uses for himself at the moment in history when Israel is shown to be just as evil as every other nation. And to punctuate this fact, God brings up the fact that in Nineveh, even the cows are repenting. <laughs> the golden calves that you set up to worship as though they were the ones to save you, in this city that you consider so much more evil than you are, and you look down your nose at it as if they're a completely different class of people, in that city, even the cows are turning to me. But you think you're of a different stock than they are. It's crazy. It's crazy. I mean, that's comedy, right? That's comedy. And God, God's not throwing uh, who He is back in Jonah's face. God's saying, it's your, it's your own idolatry that I'm trying to wake you up to. It's your own need for mercy that I want you to see. Friends, that's, that's the only difference. It's the only difference. In, of all peoples in all places, it's not, it's not how much some are better than others or some are more deserving than others. The only difference in God's economy is those who see their need for mercy and grace and forgiveness and those who cannot. That's it. That's it. Jonah's problem is that he, he doesn't realize that the only thing that separates Israel from Nineveh is the fact that God has been gracious to them. And, and it's, it's, that's the divine 
comedy that God is trying to show Jonah and show us as the readers is, is that if Jonah actually repented the way that his enemies did, then the presence of God would sweep through his life with just as much cleansing fire as it did for the city. God's grace is just as available for the man who can't see it as it is for the people that are taking hold of it. The good news we proclaim is that God is not useful. God is love. He delights in showing mercy to whomever he wishes, and he wishes to show mercy to everyone. So let's see that God is using every means necessary to get our attention that we might encounter his goodness and mercy, even if it comes through the face of our enemies. God doesn't allow Jonah to stew in his contempt. He begins to engage Jonah. He condescends to Jonah's level in an attempt to open him up to his blindness. And he uses, he uses things like questions. Why are you angry? Are you justified in it? And he uses a plant to give shade to Jonah. And he uses a worm to chew the plant to take it away from Jonah uh, so that Jonah is left out in the sun. And we read this, I think, sometimes when we go, like, is God just trying to torment him? Like, is he, like, taking sadistic pleasure in the fact that Jonah is so blind and he's just, like, trying to make it all the worse for him? No, that's not what he's doing. He's trying, to, he's trying to get Jonah's attention. He's, he's, trying, he's trying to help Jonah to see why God might actually love this city that he hates. Jonah's only concern in life is for the things that directly benefit him, for the things that, that, that are useful to him. And part of the reason he's so angry at God is because God is not being useful. And God wants to shake Jonah from that, the prison of seeing the world as, as just whether or not it benefits you. Because that's not the way that God designed us to live. And, and to be honest, to live that way is a prison of our own making. To, to see every other human being for what they can or cannot do to you is a prison. And it will ruin you. And it'll ruin the lives of everybody around you. And God doesn't want that for his prophet. And he doesn't want that for his people. That's the whole point. The whole reason that God brought Jonah into contact with his enemy is because Jonah is the one who needs to be transformed. And ultimately, the, the story isn't really about Jonah. It's really not about Nineveh. This story was written as, as almost like a parable for God's people, first Israel, and, and, and even throughout history down to us, who will read Jonah. And it's about how we'll respond to this merciful, unpredictable God. In other words, God is trying to get our attention, isn't He? He condescends and He accommodates to our condition, just as He does to Jonah. He comes to us in our inability to see the ways that we need His mercy. And he, and he offers us picture after picture that we might gain new sight. But here's the thing. So often, which is just like Jonah, we, we reinterpret God's, um, God's attempts at merciful interaction with us as just being either coincidental or for blessing and condemnation. So, Things happen to us in our day, and we think, 
we either just chalk it up to either good luck or bad luck, or we, or we bring God into those things and we interpret them as, as either God giving us good things because He blesses us or giving us bad things because He's like mad at us. And the, the plant and the worm are neither. They can't be categorized in either of those ways. Both the plant and the worm and the, the, the harsh east winds are all attempts of God to wake Jonah up to what he's doing. The reason that the book of Jonah ends on a question is because it's asking that same question to us. Will we live our lives awake to God's presence and interpret everything that happens to us in light of God's steadfast love, his unpredictable, merciful, compassionate grace and love? God is not useful. He's love. He delights in showing mercy to whom he wishes, and he wishes to show mercy to everyone. So let us see that God is using every means necessary every circumstance necessary to wake us up, to gain our attention that we might actually encounter this God of grace and goodness for ourselves, even if it takes enemies to do it. The last question remaining is, how does God gain Jonah's attention? How does God gain our attention when we can't see our need for mercy? How does He wake us up when we're stuck in our arrogance and our pride? The answer of the book of Jonah is shocking and surprising. The answer is that God gives us the gift of enemies. God gives us the gift of enemies. They're a gift to Jonah. And they're a gift to us. They don't seem like gifts, do they? You ever think of an enemy as a gift? You're like, man, I'm so glad that they are in my life. My life is just so much better because they're irritating and they always you know, do things to bother me. And uh, they've hurt me in, in incredible ways. And they've taken away my comfort and my livelihood and they've you know we never say that god thank you for these enemies i just they're so dear to me (laughs) we don't do that and we don't do that because they aren't useful to us they often contradict the ways that we want them to be useful they get in the way of our agenda they short circuit our plans for a happy life our hustles to get what we want they're roadblocks to the life that we wish we had. Uh, when I think about my enemies, that's the way I think about them. In fact, the only thing enemies seem useful for is to help us feel more self-righteous. Because at least we're not like them. But the truth is that enemies are more useful than we realize. They're useful to Jonah and they're useful to us. Like I said, all of us have people in our life that we think if this person or if these people weren't Uh, in existence, if they were part of my world, then it would be so easy to follow Jesus. I mean, it it would just be me and Jesus on this rainbow to heaven, you know? Like we'd be smelling the daisies together and walking hand in hand. But Jonah flips that narrative on its head and says to us, could it be, could it be that this person is in your life precisely as an invitation from God to you to experience God's grace by giving it away to the person that you hate? Could it be that this is not an interruption to your life with God, but actually ground zero of God's activity in your world? It doesn't mean that you um, put yourself in, in ways that increase the trauma that you've experienced. It doesn't mean that you submit yourself to harm again. 
It doesn't mean that forgiveness is not hard and may not take a lifetime. I'm not saying any of those things. I'm not spiritually bypassing the hurt and the harm that enemies do to us. It's real, and it needs to be reckoned with. And it's okay if it takes a lifetime. But could it be that those places in our hearts where we feel broken are not actually to be avoided but embraced as the work of God in us, to restore and to redeem and to, and to make whole so that we might actually become over time what Jesus says we can become, which is the kind of person who loves people that we would automatically hate if not for his grace. Walter Wink puts it this way in a book called Engaging the Powers. And he's the one who calls uh, this the gift of the enemy. He says, this, this is the gift that our enemy may bring to see aspects of our life that we cannot discover any other way. Our friends sel- seldom show us our flaws. In fact, they're our friends because they're able to overlook or ignore those parts of us. The enemy is therefore not merely a hurdle to be leapt over on the way to God. Our enemy might actually be the way to God. We cannot come to terms with our own inner shadows except through our enemies. We have almost no other access to those unacceptable parts of ourselves that need redeeming except through the mirror that our enemies hold up to us. See, oftentimes we are too busy replaying the actions of our enemies to, uh, to stop and notice what that actions reveal about us and how God might want to meet us in the midst of those reactivities. The, the book of Jonah is all about this man who's reactive to the people that he hates. He reacts without thinking. He's just angry and contemptuous and self-righteous. He's just, everything is just a, a, an immediate reaction And God's invitation to Jonah is is to lay down his reactivity and to pick up responsibility and responsiveness. To think about what, what his enemies are doing in his own heart to reveal what God wants to show him about his own life. That he might become more like God. And that's the work that enemies do in us. It's an uncomfortable grace. Walter suggests this uh this activity. You could choose to do it if you want or not. But he says this, at some point, sit down and write down every character trait that you're enemy, in your enemy that you hate. Like, just list it all out. Like, what are the things that bother you and, and that just gnaw at you? Some of you? That sounds like a fun activity, right? Something you might want to do on Father's Day. I don't, I, who knows? Um, <laughs> Maybe, maybe not. Write out this list. And then once you're done with it, stop and begin to pray. And ask God to, to be present in this activity and, to, and, and then to go through each trait and ask God to show you if you've ever displayed the same behavior. Ask God to show you ways, moments, circumstances, experiences where you've seen it pop up in your life. And then for each of those behaviors, as you see them in yourself, um, ask Him to give you eyes to see where and when it pops up in your life as well as an awareness of any kind of bad news that's triggering that reaction. And see what God does with that time. 
See if he doesn't redeem you through it. Now, I, I, can't, um, I can't tell you to do something that I haven't already done, right? That would be disingenuous. So uh, I, I was thinking about this yesterday, and um, I realized that the people that I hold the most contempt towards regularly, like if I could put them all into a category, it would be those who regularly misjudge my intentions without taking the time to understand why I've done something. Oh, man. Like, we could... Let's have some church. Like, we could talk about this for a while. But that, that like, over and over again, it's like when people jump to conclusions about my intentions, whether or not my intentions were good or not, that drives me crazy. And I was asking God, like, reveal... like. Show me, where, like, where does this happen? And I was coming up blank. It's not that I don't have them. I just, I, I just wasn't able to think of any at the time. So um, we're doing a bedtime routine. Well, I say we. Mandy is doing a bedtime routine with the kids. She's putting them all. It's not going well, okay? They're not listening. They're not doing what they should. It's taking a long time. And I can hear the frustration level in the house rising as I'm trying to Finish a sermon so I can talk to you all, right? And, uh, and so this is going on. I'm not getting the whole story because I've got my earphones on, my beloved noise-canceling headphones. So I'm, I'm not getting everything. But I take them off at one point, and, and um, Mandy was, was frustrated with Caleb, our oldest son. And so, um, so he goes to bed finally, and I'm, I'm, now I'm trying to help and like do what I can, but I'm like late to the game, so I'm, I'm trying to... like you know, get stuff downstairs and just like, just make like this tiny little contribution <laughs> to this whole mess. And uh, as I'm doing that, Caleb like, wham, whacks on the wall. Like he's frustrated because he's in bed and he, 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 he's just angry at the whole situation. And I go in and I rip him a new one. I scream at him and I point at him. Like I'm in his face. And he backs down and he says, okay. And he, like, I'll, you know, and he goes to bed and I storm out of the room. And I'm like, I helped. <laughs> this is my contribution to the evening. And then I realize later, as I'm talking to Mandy, that sh- she was frustrated, not primarily at Caleb, but at the other two who weren't doing what they were supposed to. And when I took off my headphones, I heard the last little bit of a, of a much larger story, and I took out all my anger on Caleb. I did exactly what I find most frustrating when other people do it to me. Man, that's humbling. So I, you know, we're still repairing that relationship even this morning. But I told him this morning, like, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. You didn't deserve that. Friends, God is not useful to us all the time, but God is love. He delights in showing mercy to whom he wishes, and he wishes to show mercy to everyone. Let's see that God is using every circumstance, even every conflict, to get our attention and to wake us up to his goodness and mercy, even if it takes enemies to do it. Will you receive this gift today? Let's pray.